Did you know your brain sends out tons of electrical signals? And scientists have actually figured out how to make those signals do something, or rather, how do we read those signals and do something with them? This is called Brain Computer Interface, or BCI. Today, we're going to talk with Jeffrey Lim, a PhD candidate who is researching just this field, and we'll learn some of the amazing things that he's doing in his lab. All right, everyone, welcome back to another Talks with Joe. We took a short break because of just some life things that happened and obviously, you know, COVID pandemic and all that stuff. Um, but today we're back and I'm excited to have uh, Jeff Lim, who is a colleague of mine at UC Irvine, um, joining us. Um, Jeff, welcome to the show. Hi, really glad to be here. Yeah, so Jeff is uh, also in the biomedical engineering uh, doctorate program. And Jeff, I just want to ask a little bit about your background, maybe how you ended up at UC Irvine, and then we'll get later into the research you're doing. But um, just first off, how, how did you find your way to um, a doctorate program at UC Irvine? Uh, so even going into undergrad, it was always my intention to go into higher education. The, the way that I saw it was that if I ever took like an extended break following undergrad to just like go and work in industry or something, it would only get harder and harder to come back to do it. And I always felt like I had the aptitude and the drive to go for it. So why not, you know, kind of like I, I could do it. So why not um, do your undergrad at? So I went to the bioengineering program at UCSD as well. So not too far away as well. Um, and then follow, following that, I applied to a bunch of different places. Um, and then UCI ended up accepting me, uh, which works out really well because UCI is pretty much, it's like 30 minutes away from where I grew up. Like I practically grew up in Irvine as well. So like... I, I was really happy about it. I'm sure my parents are really happy about it because I get to be nearby for another X number of years. Um, and as well as the program itself had a, like one or two labs that I was really interested in doing research with. Nice, nice. So obviously, um, I mean, we both at this point, we've been in the program a couple of years, but uh, mm -hmm. going through the program at UCI, what were some of the things that you found were um, Pretty much what you expected and maybe what were some of the things that you found that were unexpected that you didn't really think would uh, be part of the program I, I guess it's hard because i guess the question was about is is about expectations right yeah. so it's hard to like go back six years or so to think about like what did I expect this experience to be about? Because in my undergrad, I had already kind of done a little bit of research work already. So I had kind of a, a bit of a taste of what that would be like. Um, but I think, and I guess this will vary from lab to lab, but a, I guess like the amount of cooperation that happens at the graduate level um, 
is is I guess a bit higher than I expected in terms of like the amount that you interact with your professor. Because at least I know for me, so I work for Dr. Nenadich, um, who's currently the department chair, um, and he's always very willing to be open and help with with uh, the graduate students. But of course, like when you're doing research as like an undergrad, you kind of like play second fiddle to like whatever your professor's primary interest in, which is fine and that's understandable because um, typically the work that you're going to give an undergrad is going to be less critical things. But I think that was a little different. Um, and as far as the, the, the research load, um, I wouldn't say like it's much more than I expected, um, but at least hearing from other people, it seems like there, there's a lot more different things that what doing research can entail as far as like what would be considered. Like for some people, it's like, okay, the only thing that you're doing is like lab work, right? lab work like day in day in day out just to like try to get that really good result and i think that's probably what more i expected uh the research to be like especially for us in biomedical where we need to like actually collect physiological data but for others it's maybe okay a lot of your work is actually i don't know maybe messing with like instrumentation or doing purely analytical work which i know probably you and I are more in that kind of realm or even things like just like writing applications for like uh, scholarships or grants. Like that's like a huge people of some people's um, working time. And I know also for you, like you do a lot of TAing and then that's also something that like I kind of had an idea about, but like until I did TAing myself, I really didn't know like the, the level of time commitment is necessary to do something like that. Right, because you, you don't want to be a bad TA, obviously, because you are. Right, yeah. Like that was my biggest fear is like at the end of the 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 reviews at the end, I was like, oh man, I, they're, they're going to like rip me apart, which I mean, some people did, of course, but I, th I, I think I got a, a generally a positive response, but perhaps that's a bit of confirmation bias on my end. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's always like, for me, it's like, I always gotta remember, even though you're a couple years removed from undergrad, yet I always try to remember, okay, I was this student at some point, and like, I get where they're coming from, because like, you know, being an undergrad, you have, especially in the quarter systems, like, you have a lot of stuff to do very quickly. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like kind of mimicking that is always interesting but i wanted to ask also now about um your research and specifically in nanodistrict lab that's kind of like the interesting stuff that we get to talk about um how would you describe uh what maybe let's start with your lab overall like i know it's kind of more difficult for some labs but what does your lab focus on in terms of biomedical and medical applications and research okay so our lab is I guess if we were to have like a general mission statement, um, we're kind of focused on applying uh, kind of engineering and engineering and processing techniques to brain uh, signal data in order to develop 
different techniques and devices to treat various types of uh, neural pathologies. So for example, one of the main drives of our lab currently is we are developing a brain computer interface for um, quadriplegics um, to allow them to restore their walking capability. So essentially we're trying to build a device that will interface the brain with a walking prosthesis. And so for, yeah, so that's obviously really cool. So for people who are listening, like uh, you, you're basically trying to use brain signals to, I guess, act on something, right? Right. So, I mean, I, I, I guess the e Elon Musk's uh, Neuralink is, is probably the most widely known type of brain computer interface. So it's like that type of device where you're kind of taking the brain signal uh, or, or you're, you're, you create some type of device to record the brain signals and then use that to control some type of external device. So you're using the brain signals as a command to actuate some type of like say like a motor arm prosthesis or a motor leg prosthesis, or even for some people who have like ALS, they've given them devices that allow them to kind of control like a cursor or like a keyboard so that they can communicate um, for, for those that are completely locked in. Right, okay, that's, yeah, that's pretty cool. So in terms of um, how that works, like, uh, are there obviously there's different types of brain signals or is there a particular one that you're focused in your research right so obviously there are a bunch of different methodologies of extracting brain signal because i mean like brain signal itself is like a very broad term right at the very fundamental level you're looking at okay the brain operates on uh electrical impulses, right? So neurons emit what are called action potentials. And there's these, these little bursts of electrical activity that um, travel from neuron to neuron. And this is how they communicate. And yet, if, if that's like the most fundamental level of signaling, you then can consider kind of a, a concert of neurons of activity um, that are now exhibiting some kind of signal signature that you can then try to capture because obviously there are trillions of neurons in the brain. So if you start considering what our options are for capturing the electrical activity, so it's typically some form of electrode and then the differences in modality are just like, how close do you wanna get, right? So at the lowest level, we have like a patch clamp or something like a Utah array where you're like implanting directly onto a singular neuron and then trying to capture those individual action potentials. However, as you go up in invasiveness, you have things like uh, stereo EEG, which are kind of larger electrodes that they like implant like into the tissue itself. So there's actually some kind of ablation of tissue itself where because these are like very large needles that they're just sticking like several inches into the brain um, which is pretty wild if you see the images of like this is a thing that we do to people so those uh, are another way 
and as well as um, ECOG, which is primarily what I work in um, and what our, our, a lot of our labs research is done in. Uh, these are grids that are still invasively implanted. So they go under the skull and essentially they place this rectangular grid of uh, metallic electrodes and they implant that or they place that over the cortical surface in order to uh, uh, obtain kind of like a broader picture view of this electrical activity. Okay, so in, I'm walking back a little bit, hopefully I didn't lose you. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got you. Okay, so walking back a little bit, because that was a lot, obviously. Um, yeah, so sure. I guess the basic, uh, like the neuron itself, maybe to give people a sense of idea of like, you know, what scale we're looking at, like how big is like a single neuron? And then like how big are like, you know, the smaller electrodes and how big do the bigger electrodes kind of get to? Right. So if we're talking about just the main body of the neuron, um, it, it's going to be, it's going to be about the size of your, your, average cell, right? So like a few hundred microns. Um, but once you start to consider its, um, its synapses, so the axons and the dendrites, so you, if you see your typical picture of a neuron, right? Like you have the main body of the cell and then you have all of these processes that kind of extend out further, right? So axons are kind of like outward sending cables, whereas dendrites are more like receiving cables. So those can run like almost the length of your body. But if you, obviously if we're considering just the central nervous system, then they can like run from brain side to brain side, right? It, it just all depends. Um, and then once you start considering larger cascades of things, um, cascades of neuronal networks, those start to get much larger in size. So typically the, the ECOG grids that I'm working with, you're working on like a centimeter scale. So many, many orders of magnitude higher than, than the base neuron. So with ECOG, you're never gonna capture like a single neuron's activity. What you get instead is kind of a summation of like, hundreds of thousands of neurons activity happening at the same time. And where our work is, is using kind of these very traditional like signal processing techniques that people use in like communications, like electronics communications, in order to try to disentangle which types of activity are related to the behavior that the person is trying to do. So say like when a person is thinking of walking, like what does that brain signal look like and what type of technique do we need to use to extract um, when that is happening or when they were, when they are having that thought. Yeah. So I guess that's, that's uh, like one of the things your lab is most known for because you guys did have that like demonstration of uh, paraplegic, I think, right? Yeah. Paraplegic. Uh, individual who um, was able to somewhat walk on their own having extracted information with one of these devices, right? Yeah, so you, I, I'm pretty sure there's a video on YouTube. If you just look up like Dr. Nenadich 
DCI, like EEG um, walking or paraplegic walking or something like that, you can find the actual footage of us doing it. So for that study, we are using um, EEG, which is a non kind of like a non-invasive version of ECOG, where they're just placing electrodes like on the on the scalp, so on the surface of the skin. So no surgery required. So it makes it a lot easier for us to kind of do our. Um, obviously, we don't need to like hire a brain surgeon, right, mm -hmm. or get in touch with a brain surgeon to do this type of thing. So essentially you can still get some of that walking walking signal. So the walking signal I mentioned previously with ECOG, some of that activity is still there on the surface of the brain, right? It's just been kind of smeared over the, the surface of the head. Because um, obviously like those underlying electrical signals are still there. You're just now recording them from a different perspective. So you kind of have to understand how both the skull and the scalp kind of transform that signal. And then with, with those assumptions in mind, kind of re reorganize how you're trying to capture those signals in order to be able to make uh, or get like the machine decision of like, okay, do you want to walk or not? So in our case, in, in the case of that study, they used EEG and the device that they were actuating were actually um, functional electrical stimulators applied to the leg muscles. So uh, it, we call them FES. So that when those activate, you're actually activating the person's muscles itself. So with our current study, we're using a robotic exoskeleton. So the exoskeleton is doing all the work. But in that case, we're stimulating the person's muscles. The muscles are the act are what are actually moving the person. So it's kind of a more uh, like natural, or we, we call it biomimetic. So mo more closer to nature um, way of kind of restoring walking, right? So we equip the person with the EEG cap and then the, and the FES, and then what we do is we have software that kind of scans the signals in real time and then tries to make a decision on whether or not the person is thinking of walking, right? If that decision is yes, then they activate the functional simulators in a cycle to like left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. And you'll see that kind of happening in the video as well. And then as as they're recording as they're recording picking up more data if we if the software sees a shift in the person's electrical activity in their thought patterns that correlates to okay walking stop now then it turns off those stimulators and then obviously the person they're paraplegic so they're going to stop walking at that point okay that's really cool so that's obviously you guys have demonstrated this and it's pretty difficult to do i'm assuming um, so for your research, you're, you said you're doing this with an exoskeleton, so kind of like a, uh, I guess how we describe it, like a robotic leg um, apparatus, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so like if you're th like whatever like bionic robot movie leg thing that you're thinking of, it's like basically like that. Like you ever see Edge of Tomorrow? Right, yeah. Right, like they have those like mechanical frames around their bodies. Like think of like that type of thing, but like for your legs. 
Um, so our our idea, so like, I mean, we're not developing the exoskeleton in-house. We don't have the type of robotics experience to do that. So we have, um, we, we bought like a pair of exoskeleton legs because apparently that's a thing that you can just buy, right? <laughs> um, um, and we are, we are essentially modifying it to work with our software because obviously the, for for them. Where did you buy it from? Like, they're 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 a company, um, and they sell it for primarily rehabilitation purposes. So, like, I think their customers are mostly like, I, I think they do do some some sales to research labs, like like for us, um, but they're like target. I guess demographic is primarily like physical trainers that work in hospitals um, to use as kind of like a rehabilitation tool. Because at its very base, that exoskeleton is essentially used as like a walking assist for like people who have had like strokes or injury or spinal injuries to kind of like pull them through the motions of walking um because i've ridden it before too because of course i have to ride in it it's a freaking exoskeleton um uh and and what it does it it essentially is it it it, it very faithfully or as as close as a machine can it kind of pulls you through the motions of like a natural walking gait um but obviously it, it, it is not self-balancing. So like you need to have a, another person there to like hold the thing in order for it to work. Um, but it, it, it essentially you can manually cue each step individually. So you take like walking stance and then you like press a button or there's even like weight sensors if the person wants to like self cue. Um, and then once you, you hit like the requirements for a step, it'll like take you through a step. Um, I want to say, I want to say forcibly, but it's like a bit more gently, gentler than that. Um, okay, so you guys are taking, so I guess the way you guys are kind of understanding this correctly, you guys are basically using this existing device and then you're using your existing implants which you guys have developed um, in the process of developing. <laughs> process of developing. Okay, so yeah. you're developing this implant that will record the data, um, the brain data, and then you're going to use that after you process it to help a person walk through the device itself. Right, exactly. So as it is currently, the exoskeleton is essentially cued by remote control, right? So our intention is to substitute that remote control with our BCI to where now the commands are being issued by the person's brain um, and not just like a second person who's just controlling a remote. And our, we are collaborating with a lab in the EECS department, uh, Dr. Hedari lab, um, because they are, their lab is kind of experts in kind of nanoscale technology, which is perfect for what our implants are. Um, so for, for us, for Dr. Nenadish Lab, we're kind of more focused on like the processing side um, for looking at both, for, for looking primarily at like extracting the walking signal. So it's like, okay, we have this implant that can perfectly capture like all the electrical, relevant electrical activity that we need. Um, 
now what are the algorithms and things that we have to employ in order to cleanly make this walking decision making work smoothly yeah so okay that's really interesting so you guys are um once you've collected the data um because obviously you have it but you need to actually make sense of it basically right um, you need so to make a decision the, in real time right okay so what are some of the techniques that you guys are have used or are trying to implement to make sense of this data i guess maybe we should start with what type of data like what does it look like first um i guess as much as you can visualize data for people um and then how how do you go about like trying to find relevant um signals i guess right so what we're usually working with so we're working with a 32 or 64 channel array on the brain so what what they'll do is they have this like plastic sheet that it is encased in it are metallic electrodes so there's typically like 32 per sheet and they'll implant that over the motor leg area which is actually like within inside of the central fissure of your brain so if you ever seen like your typical brain like model how there's like kind of like a there's like a gap running through the central line of it the motor leg area is actually inside that gap so what they have to do is they have to they they make a hole in the skull and they kind of like insert it all the way in through there and then once we have a grid over that we kind of we once we have a grid over the motor leg area we now okay, know that okay we are now receiving electrical activity that's related to leg movement hence wise walking right so from there we're taking all of our channels of data and we essentially look for any type of changes in electrical activity that are related to that or that are correlated is not exactly the correct word because it's a bit more than correlation because we need causation um but we're looking for electrical activity that changes at the same time as the walking changes right so we've done a lot of studies in the past where essentially we have people who have these implanted electrodes and we put them on a treadmill and then we have cycles of walking and idling that we collect that data and we go back and we process it so we like isolate them into chunks it's like okay this person's only walking during this time this person is only standing still during this time and we analyze the spectral characteristics so frequency domain characteristics of that signal so if you look at any type of brain signal it's, it's kind of like a lot of various different types of oscillations um kind of summed together um i, I guess the best way to describe it is just like it's it's a it's a, it's a summation of a bunch of different squigglies, I guess. And then you have, you have 32 different ones, one from each channel, right? So we're trying to look at it at a change of the pattern in the squigglies in order to make our determination. So what we found, um, typically when you're looking at neural signals, you will break them down by frequency, right? So we have several different frequency bandwidths that we're looking with. Um, each of them have traditionally signaled different things, signal for different things. So like, say like Delta, Delta wave is like the lowest frequency activity. That's typically seen as some kind of like synchronizing 
activity for the other waves. Um, you have alpha, which is very commonly seen in the visual cortex. Um, you can do like recordings when your eyes are open and closed and you'll see a very distinct change in that alpha wave. Um, and then all sorts of Greek letters going up to the one that we care about, which is high gamma frequency. Um, which for those who are more engineering inclined, that's the 80 to 160 hertz range. And we have found that that has the highest um, kind of determining factor in terms of this walking. So when we see walking activity, we see very high gamma activity. And then when they stop walking, that activity drops back down. Hmm. So essentially what we do with our algorithms is that we track the amount of high gamma activity that we see in the motor leg area in order to make a determination on whether or not uh, we think the person is walking right. And the way that we do that is we use a Bayesian binary state detector. So to, to kind of break that down, bi binary, the, the binary part basically means it's, 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 it's all or nothing, right? So it's either you're idling or you're walking. So we're not trying to do like how fast are they walking or are they running or are they I don't, I, all sorts of different things. We're not we're not totally interested in that. We're just we're just looking for a yes or a no. So that's what the binary thing is. And then as far as the Bayesian aspect of is concerned, at its most simplest, we are just trying to determine a probability of how likely is it that the person is walking based off of prior information. So essentially based off of what we've what brain activity we've recorded already, how likely is it that this person is walking? And then based on that probability, we typically set some type of threshold. So like once we surpass that thresh that probability threshold, we're in walking territory. When, when we're under that th threshold, we're in idling territory. And in this way, we can kind of collect information in real time, feed it through this Bayesian binary state machine, and then that essentially spits out like a walk or no walk decision, which we then feed to the exoskeleton. Got it. So that's, yeah, that's really cool. So you guys are obviously doing a lot of processing in real time. And when you're looking at frequencies, I guess for the more visually astute people, it's basically like the signals are like, like zigzagging up and down, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So like the higher frequencies, you have more zigzags per second. Yeah, so frequency. faster, faster zigzags. <laughs> and then lower frequencies, less zigzags. So you yeah, have to yeah. be looking at um, changes in those, the amount of zigzags. <laughs> yeah, kind of. It, 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 to, at the end of it, we're looking for changes in the signal, wh whatever kind of changes, and then we're trying to use those to make a decision about whether to activate our device or not. Um, okay, yeah, that's that's super cool. So, have you guys, when you guys are developing these algorithms, like, does it require like really powerful computers, or it doesn't seem like you need too much, but maybe you do need like a certain like base amount of like processing power and like, I guess, memory. So 
we are actually very purposefully trying to keep this as computationally simple as possible. And the reason for that is this thing is an implant, right? We have to fit all of the hardware that we need into like a, like a millimeter by millimeter space, right? I, I think, I think our implant dimensions are like a hundred millimeters by a hundred millimeters. So it's like, you're not fitting a supercomputer in there. Right. So it's like all of your processing in terms of both like brain signal analysis and just like hardware that you need to operate this whole ensemble needs to be located in that space. So obviously you not only do you have space constraints, but you also have kind of energy constraints, right? Because you you have to be battery powered, right? Like you can't plug a person into the wall. So, and then not only that is that you can't consume too much energy because some of that energy or all of that energy gets converted to heat, right? And if that thing is right over the person's brain, you can't have that get too hot, obviously, right? Or you risk some permanent damage. So this whole Bayesian state machine is actually purposely very simple in order to keep our, con our computational costs low. Right, okay, so that's really interesting. You put all of this in the device itself and the signal that is extracted, like how do you get the, uh, the signal out of the brain? Is it through like uh, Bluetooth or is it like Wi-Fi? Or how, how exactly are you from the implant to, you know, the actual motorized ways, are you getting that signal there? Right. So that process is going to be wireless. Um, so we, we're communicating wireless from kind of like the, the neural collection unit, and we're transmitting that wirelessly to the, to the legs. Um, and that's just to essentially by doing that you avoid having a transcutaneous wire so essentially a wire that you a wire that pokes out of the skin because obviously that's generally a bad thing because that's always an infection risk and then i don't think there are many people who want to have wires coming out of their body <laughs> um, it's a pretty 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 big turnoff for most people i would think <laughs> yeah okay so i don't know too much about like you know wireless transmissions, but I know a little bit based on, you know, my background, but do you guys run into any issues for um, signal transmission uh, from the brain to the body? Because obviously you're, you might have to go, you have a certain range based on whatever frequency you're at, but also the, the tissues, do those interfere? Because I found at least in my experience that water content with our bodies are mostly water sometimes interferes with like signal transmission. Have you guys run into that at all? Um, so the, the studies for kind of like the tissue transmission of what, like, I know, I know that we've done studies with one version of like our, our wireless transceiver device. Um, but from what I understand, like the thickness of the tissue that we're dealing with is like not significant enough to significantly interfere and as well as we're working with um the med radio band so it's it's a band specifically reserved for medical devices just so that it's you don't get other stuff cross talking within that band so it's kind of like internationally reserved for that that happens in kind of like the megahertz range 
which as far as I understand is not significantly hindered by tissue or at least not the levels of tissue that we're talking about, which is mostly just like skin because our, our implant is essentially just lying under skin level, or at least the transceiving aspect of it is going to be just under skin level. Um, so I, I don't, I don't expect there to be huge problems as, as far as like sending and receiving the signal, okay. at least from like an interference aspect. Yeah, that's <laughs> Joey's a biomedical engineering right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, you have to like, oh, we have to deal with the human body, which is a whole mess of different materials and properties and things that uh, are not very well understood. So you kind of just have to go do it, do it by ear and kind of just see like, okay, what are we observing empirically? Um, and then based off of that, what, what do we have to do or what, what are we allowed to do, you know? Yeah, so that's, that's really cool. I guess for um, just kind of like the, maybe a wrap up portion because we're getting closer to the end of time, but we're still some time. Um, okay. So what do you, uh, I guess, what is your, your personal uh, goals and timelines for maybe the rest of your doctor program, but also just, you know, beyond the doctor program? What are you looking forward to? So as far as within the doctorate program, so I'm coming into my fifth year now, um, this this fall, or I guess like right now, because it's school year starting. Um, so as, as far as that goes, I'm looking to graduate basically within the next year or so. Hopefully hopefully by next fall is what I'm, I'm shooting for. Uh, and in order to do that, I, I need to get publications out. Um, so I'm, I'm shooting for maybe like another, I have like another paper. I have one paper that I'm wrapping up now and then maybe like one more work following that that I haven't really started yet. Um, so I'm hoping to focus most of my last year on that last work. And then from there, it's mostly just a, I don't want to say it's just paperwork because obviously it's writing my thesis in defense, right? But it, I'm, I'm at the point where it's like I've done most of the research work already. It's now just a process of compiling those works into a singular um, kind of like a science storyline, right? To, to, to summarize my, my overall uh, PhD work. I guess most people don't realize that like for PhD programs, you hit a point where like your experiments stop and you're just like writing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like it, it, it happens with papers firstly, right? It's like you do all the research work and at some point it's like, okay, I basically have everything I need. Now I'm just writing in order to put the data that I've collected together in something that will make sense to other people. And I guess now thinking forward past uh, the program, are you thinking about academia, are you thinking about industry? What is your what is your general rating right now? Yeah, so I'm personally looking more towards industry. Um, most likely going to look pretty broadly at the medical device uh, sector, hopefully in some, some type of uh, research and development division. Because um, I do still like doing research um, especially for things like medical devices where where there's like 
some tangible device that you can work with because for a lot of biomedical things you're either working with like wet lab work with cells which i personally cannot stand i can't i abhor using microscopes i don't like doing wet work uh, so i very decidedly did chose to not do a lab that does those types of things um and then as as far as like types of medical devices go i don't really have any type of preference i mean obviously my expertise so far has been in these neurological devices which i will still look to do because that's going to be my one of my strengths um but there just aren't that many companies that are doing brain brain like interface research i mean obviously there's Neuralink is the big one uh, but i mean that's being funded by one of the richest people in in in, in the nation yeah there aren't that many elon musks out there but i mean there there are smaller companies that are doing doing things like i know even like one of the biggest companies here uh mossimo one of their main things is kind of just like how do you describe it? Just like hospital instrumentation. So like when you go into the hospital and you like see, see like all the different devices that they have just to like monitor what the person's like state is or like what the like pulse, pulse readings, oxygen monitors, all sorts, all sorts of different things. They develop all sorts of their devices. And one of their things that they have is like an EEG monitor. So that is a type of thing that I could help with because I have a lot of experience with doing EEG as well. Um, and then even there's another company, I, I forget what their name is, but they're developing a brain control interface for bowel control. So what will happen if with a lot of like spinal cord injury patients is that they lose control of their bowels, right? So obviously that's a big, problem that needs to be solved so essentially we what what people have done is they've developed a device that will read the brain to to see okay do you want to go to the bathroom now or not and then i mean that is a very simple yes or no problem right so they can just install a stimulator that'll keep the sphincter closed when the answer is no and then when the answer is yes then you can just relax that and then it'll happen normally so there are those types of devices, and then there are also the devices for, um, they've done it for Parkinson's, these deep brain stimulators. So yeah. they, they've done it for Parkinson's, um, and then now they've also released a device for epilepsy as well. Uh, well, they, they've done it in the past for epilepsy. I think Parkinson's is the new one. Right. I, I haven't looked into it for a while. Yeah, those devices are mostly like seizure and shaking control, right? Like, right, exactly. Yeah, so there there have been developments in that field as well. Yeah, uh, those are those pretty cool. Yeah, so there are there are more and more applications for these types of brain technologies, but it's still a very small sector of kind of like the medical device pie. Right. Well, I think. That might be a good time to wrap up and uh, yeah, where can people find, I guess, some of your work, um, maybe recent publications, anything like that? Um, so as far as publications, you can read, 
you can look at Dr. Nenadich's website. So if you just look up Dr. Nenadich's name, it'll show you like the UCI directory and there'll be a link to his website. And he has, he has archived both our current works. So currents that we've works that we've recently published as well as the history of all the works that have come from the lab. So I know I have a paper up there and it's that I first authored as well as a few that I've helped co-author or second author. Um, those are mostly, most of the new ones that we've had are more towards the uh, the implant side of things. So just papers on the kind of hardware and architecture of what our implants are gonna look like. So for people who are interested in that, um, those, those works are on there. Um, and as well as if you look back further, maybe like circa 2013, you can find some of our works that deal with um, kind of more of the brain signal processing aspect of things. And as well as the, the walking video that I mentioned previously from our, our previous work, that's up on that website as well. All right, so that's Dr. Nenadich, that's N-E-N-A-D-I-C, correct? Yes, Zoran, Zoran Nenadich, Z-O-R-A-N, uh, last name N-E-N-A-D-I-C. Great. So if you guys are interested in the wonderful work that they're doing in that lab, a lot of really cool things. Um, be sure to look up Jeff Wim. And uh, I guess you're probably published under Jeff in your full name, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if you look, if you go to like Google Scholar and look up Jeffrey Lim, um, I think there's actually a doctor <laughs> who's more famous than me with the same name. But uh, if you look specifically for like ECOG, or if you look for like specifically BCI, maybe I'll be the first one that'll show up. <laughs> Great. Well, um, yeah, thanks for taking the time, Jeff. This is a lot of fun. And uh, maybe we'll do something similar in the future and see, like, you know, where you're at. at yeah, one, one year follow up. <laughs> I'm down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for your time. All right. Good talking with you, Chris. Have a good one. Thanks for tuning into this podcast. Be sure to head over to iTunes. Give us that five-star rating. You can also find us on Spotify and Google Play. Talks with Toe is written and produced by Chris Toe.